Hello and welcome to the Battle Cry podcast with Mark Mecklen. Catch the original live broadcast Sunday nights at 8pm Eastern. Go to conventionofstates.com slash pod to learn more. And now, here's the Battle Cry with Mark Mecklen. The beauty of that convention, the amazing part historically, is we come out of the Articles of Confederation, these men gather in Independence Hall and they love each other. Ah, they sit around and they eat together and drink together. There's no arguments. There's no debate. Everybody agrees on everything, right? No, they hate each other. They accuse each other of all sorts of untoward things. They don't trust each other. Big states against small states. Individual personalities facing off against each other. They don't like each other. They don't trust each other. They don't trust each other's motives. They come from states that have different cultures, different economies. And out of that, out of that distrust, that dislike, and sometimes even hatred, comes the greatest form of government for the preservation of liberty ever known to man, the system of federalism. Because federalism says, hey, look, again, I don't really like you. I don't trust you. I don't want you to be able to tell me what to do. I think you have self-interest and self-dealing. But... We acknowledge that there is an existential threat and we need to be united for a limited amount of purposes and do some things together so that we can protect ourselves from this existential threat. The same as it was in the American Revolution, right? They were still facing off against Great Britain. They were still facing off against Spain. France was our quote unquote ally, but would have been just as happy to take us over. And so there was an existential threat. So these men linked arms, they saw past their differences, and they founded a government based on federalism, which is specifically a government for people who don't really like each other very much. Sound familiar? <laughs> right? This is the modern era. We live in that era. So something happens historically. We've, we jump forward from 1787 by 89. We've ratified that constitution, and we just learn to love each other. Right, the nation just becomes a cohesive whole. People in Mississippi, they are now exactly the same as people in New York. And as the nation expands, there's no strife, there's no violence, there's no hatred, there's no distrust, except for maybe that little thing called the Civil War. We hated each other. We hated each other so much that over half a million people died, over 700,000 if, if you include the injured. That's how much we didn't like each other as a nation as a singular whole. In fact, we didn't like each other so much, we fought a civil war, brothers fought against brothers, states fought against states, and ultimately we forced a union. Incredible things came out of this, but I want you to think about it, it came out of we didn't like each other. After the war, of course, immediately after the civil war, we all liked each other again. <laughs> Are you sensing a theme here? We go on through American history and we still don't like each other. There's all kinds of strife in our country, but the system of federalism holds us together as a nation in the face of existential threats internationally. As we move forward, I'm gonna jump way forward into say the 1940s. You get into World War II, uh, late 30s, early 40s, and in World War II, this is the first time really the nation sort of becomes unified, a theme an existential threat, a threat to freedom worldwide. We face off against that freedom. When we come home from World War II victorious, many men have died. 
Many have given all, many have sacrificed greatly, and we feel sort of unified as a nation. We move forward into the 1950s. Something starts to happen in the 1950s as we start to create what I would describe as a veneer of social unity. In the 1950s, you get television nationally. Now, none of us are old enough to remember when that happens, but it radically shifts the culture in the United States of America. People start watching all those black and white TV shows. Some of you might know Father Knows Best, Ozzie and Harriet, Leave it to Beaver. And it's really a weird thing happens because if you live in Mississippi, you can watch the same shows as people who live in New York. You live in a very different culture. I would argue basically a different country. If you were to go from Biloxi, Mississippi to New York City, you would not feel at home if you were a resident of Biloxi and you went to New York or vice versa. And in fact, people in New York, they didn't really like people in the South very much, and vice versa, by the way. And so this goes on throughout American history, but we start to get this veneer. You can buy the same brands in the 1950s in Mississippi that you can buy in New York. Braxo soap, there's Lucky Strike cigarettes. So it kind of feels like, well, maybe if I live in Kentucky or Mississippi or Iowa, maybe I am like people in New York. Maybe our culture really is the same. Maybe we really are one. E pluribus unum. Maybe that's what's happening in our country. Maybe we don't dislike each other so much anymore. Move into the 1960s and we get franchising. We take this for granted. You know, I can go to any city in the United States of America and I can go to a Starbucks. I can go to a McDonald's. I can go to a Carl's Jr. All these brands that we think of when you travel all over the country, if you go back to the 1960s, most of those brands didn't exist. Franchising allows these brands to spread all over the country. So we're kind of the same, right? Like if I can be in Mississippi, if I can be in Kentucky, if I can be in California, and I can eat the same food that I could eat in New York City, well, we're kind of the same. The veneer of social unity grows thicker. You move on through the 1960s, you get Major League Baseball becomes a major phenomenon, you get NFL, NBA. We start to participate in, in sports on a national level together. I mean, we may be rooting for different teams, but we're all participating in the same leagues. The veneer of national unity grows thicker. The 1970s are the heyday of big government in America, because why not? I mean, we're all the same. If I live in Mississippi, I'm exactly the same as somebody in New York. I'm watching the same TV shows, using the same products, eating at the same restaurants. I'm staying at the same hotels when I travel. I could drive from Mississippi to New York, and I could eat at the same restaurants, stay in the same hotels, use the same products, as if I were back home in Mississippi, all the way to New York. So that means if I'm from Mississippi, I'm exactly the same in somebody in New York as somebody in New York. So we should all be governed the same from the center. But something else starts to happen under that veneer that starts to crack the veneer. In the 1960s, you get the radical free speech, hippie, free love, peace movement in the 1960s, right? This breaks out on college campuses all across the country. As that starts to happen, the left starts to veer radically left in America. The right basically stays on course in America, charts basically the same course as when they started, but the left starts to veer radically left. And as we move forward into the 70s and into the 80s, people like me on the right start to think, what the hell is happening in America? I thought we were all the same. We eat the same food, we watch the same movies, we watch the same television, we stay in the same hotel chains. But I don't understand what these people on the left are talking about. I don't understand, like what is this deal with abortion? Like now abortion is a, a government mandate, it's in the Constitution. I didn't read that when I was growing up. What is this thing about today where we're at with 
the radical leftist agenda on sexuality, on gender, men or women, women or men, they're 57. What is all this? I don't understand this. I thought we're all the same. And I start to think, and we start to think, who are those people? We're not the same. I actually don't really like those people all that much. It doesn't even seem like we should live in the same country. It certainly doesn't seem like we should live under the same government. I don't want people from New York City telling me here in Texas how to live my life. And I don't think people in New York City want people from Texas telling them how to live their lives. So what happens is this veneer of oneness, of unity, starts to crack. And we start to get censorship. And we start to get commercial uh, disassembly taking place. We buy different things. We shop at different places. We boycott different companies. We travel to different places. We expect different things out of our government. So that means the country is coming apart. I have good news and I have bad news about this. The good news is the country is coming apart. The bad news is the country is coming apart. <laughs> it can go either way. We're at a fork in the road and you guys are gonna decide which way we go. See, there's two courses here because I'm just going to tell you the country's coming apart. That is inevitable. It's going, excuse me, it's going to happen. I see nothing that can stop it. We're the same as we have ever been. Human nature is unchanging. Anybody in here from the South, from one of the Southern states? Anybody say from the Northeast, maybe New York or Boston? Okay. So I'm going to generalize. I'm going to tell you something I hear all over the country. You guys tell me if this is true or not. If you're from the Northeast, my opinion is I go up to New York and I ask people in New York whether they think about people in Alabama or Arkansas or Kentucky. Yeah, they laugh at us, don't they? They say, oh, those people marry their cousins. <laughs> those people are rubes, simpletons, Bible thumpers, white trash, whatever they say about us. I hear this all the time from people I know and like in, in New York or Boston or Philly. And then if I ask the same question, let's just be fair, and I go to the South and I ask my friends from Texas or Kentucky or Alabama, what do you think of folks in New York or Boston or Philly? And they say, oh, they're snobs, arrogant, rude, obnoxious. We don't like each other. That's okay, because we're human beings, we're different. I think we should all love each other, but that doesn't mean we have to like each other or agree with each other. My Christian ethos tells me we all love each other, but we don't have to like each other. We don't have to agree to live the same way. So we have two choices when you're at this fork in the road. If the country is going to come apart, there's one of two ways it comes apart. One way it comes apart is through secession, through violence, through revolution, through civil war. If you study these things, you're smart folks, you're here at YAF, I assume you study these things, they don't turn out well. We have a bad perception, a misperception of revolution and civil war in the United States of America because by God's grace, Ours came out correctly. But if you look at the history of civil war and revolution, what happens is violence, bloodshed, death, famine, society slides backwards, and the worst people end up in charge. That's the normal process of a civil war or revolution. The most violent, the most angry, the most difficult, the most oppressive people end up winning. And so that's one way to do it. And by the way, I don't see how you split the country like that. We're here in Texas. I can tell you Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, El Paso, all the major population centers tend to be on the left and Democrat dominated the rest of the state's red. How do you divide that? I don't get that. That doesn't work. The other course is federalism. We return to federalism. 
See, federalism is a system for people who don't like each other, right? It was designed for this moment specifically. The founders understood human nature and they said, federalism is the way that we get along. We face today an existential threat. The Communist Chinese Party, I would posit, is the greatest evil ever to face the world. Anybody who sugarcoats that for you doesn't understand what the Chinese are up to. I call them the Chinazis. There's really no different. They practice ethnic genocide. They intend world domination. They intend single race domination. This is evil. And there isn't a state in America or a part of the United States of America that can face off against that. We need all of us together. We're also facing against a, another ideology, which are the Islamo-fascists. Again, they intend world domination based on religion. One that people don't mention that often, which I think is really important, we in the United States, especially here in the Southwest, we're facing off against drug cartels. These are criminal cartels that are as well-armed and as well-trained as many armies in the world. So we face these existential threats. So if we go the revolution secession route, and I hear people suggest that we ought to do that, if we do that, we're in big trouble because we can't face off. So how do we get back to federalism? There is a way back to federalism. The founders gave it to us. They put it in the United States Constitution for us. Most people aren't aware of this. Article 5 of the Constitution gives us a way to go back to federalism. The first clause of Article 5 tells us how we amend the Constitution the way Congress has done it. Congress proposes an amendment. It takes two-thirds of either, or sorry, both houses to propose an amendment. And then that amendment goes out for ratification by three-quarters of the states. That's the way we've gotten all 27 amendments. But they also put in there an Easter egg, something that we would find in time of need. And that Easter egg is the second clause of Article 5. And it says that the states can call a convention for proposing amendments. And specifically, they put it in there for a time when the federal government becomes a tyranny. Anybody in here think the federal government's a tyranny today? Yeah. Yeah. Federal government is a tyranny. By the way, 72% of Americans say the federal government's too big and does too much. So the founders put it in there for a time just like this. And they said, there's going to come a time, and we're going to count on you, the people, acting through your state legislatures to call a convention to limit federal power, to take power away from the federal government and give it back to the people. September 15th, in my opinion, is the most important day in American history. The reason I say September 15th, it's my wife's birthday. I get in big trouble if I forget that. But it is also what I call Article 5 Day. This is the day, two days before the end of convention, Colonel George Mason from Virginia stands up, he addresses the assembly, and he says this. We have made a terrible mistake in this document. It's two days before the end of convention. They're probably tired, ready to go home. He talked the second most of anybody there. They're probably sick and tired. Mason, again, please. And he says, we have made a terrible mistake. We've given the power to the federal government to propose amendments, but we've not given that same power to the people acting through the states. And it's incredible what Mason's notes reflect at this point, or Madison's notes. They say, nin com. That's shortened Latin for no comment. Nobody debates. These guys debated everything. They debated how to debate. And yet there is not a single debate about this idea that Mason has just proposed, that they need to give the states this power. And in fact, if you look at the voting record, they vote unanimously to give you 
the power to call a convention to propose amendments to restrain federal tyranny. It's the only thing I'm aware of where there's no debate and it is unanimously inserted into the Constitution and we have that power. It's now been over uh, 230 years. We've never exercised that power, but we can and we must. That's where we're at today. The organization I represent is called Convention of States. This is what we're doing. We're engaging young people like you. We're engaging old people like me. There are over 5 million people involved today. It takes 34 states to call a convention. So far, 15 states have joined the call for convention. I'll be in North Carolina next week. I expect North Carolina to be the 16th state to make the call for convention. We are going to get to a convention, and at convention, we're going to debate how to restrain the federal government from its excess abuses of power. We're going to debate a balanced budget amendment. Anybody think that the federal government spends too much? I think they spend way too much. We can impose a balanced budget amendment. Do you know that the federal government actually has no standards by which they do accounting? I was once at the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget. I asked them, do you use generally accepted accounting principles? GAAP is what it's called. And they said, no. And I said, what principles do, they, do you use? And they said, we don't have any. I said, no, I understand that, but what accounting principles do you use? They literally have no accounting principles. We need to impose gap on the federal government. We need to put tax caps on the federal government. We need to put spending caps on the federal government. Okay, now here's an easy one. Anybody here think that we need to impose term limits on the federal government? Yeah. Okay, trick question. Who thinks they'll impose term limits on themselves? Yeah, that ain't never gonna happen. Right, Congress is never gonna vote for term limits for themselves, so we can impose term limits on them. Also, term limits, what do you think about this? Term limits on the deep state, term limits on bureaucrats and staffers. We can do that too. And here's the last, and in my opinion, the best thing that we're gonna be talking about at this convention is how to limit the scope, power, and jurisdiction of the federal government. This is where the federal government's gotten out of control. They've exceeded the constitutional box. It's power expansion. Why do people wanna to go to Washington, D.C. forever? It's fun. You have an infinite amount of money to spend. You have no term limits. It's incredible. Everybody tells you how wonderful you are once you're elected. If you're a staffer, you have an amazing amount of power. If you're a bureaucrat, you have all this power, and you can make the American people do whatever they want. Can you, I mean, like, you might even be able to do something insane, like make them put cloth diapers on their face all the time. Yeah. Seems crazy, I know, but maybe. And so we can take that power away. We can tell them, how about this one? What do you guys think about saying, no, you may not have a Department of Education? Anybody in favor of that? How about, no, you may not be involved in healthcare at the national level? We can do all of these things, but it's gonna be up to you. So gonna be up to us. Five million people already involved, the movement is underway. If you guys are interested in that, you can go to conventionofstates.com. I see some volunteers in the front row. Banks is here in the front row. He's one of our great volunteers. So you guys can actually be part of this. I think this is important because I think the most important thing that you can take away from a conference like this is not inspiration. It's not motivation. It's not looking up and seeing people on stage and saying, wow, those people were great speakers or those people are doing wonderful things. The thing that you should take away from here is you should say, I'm going to fight. I'm going to be one of the people who stands. I'm going to stand up instead of st stand down. Our posterity will judge all of us, your kids, your grandkids, and we can't know who wins this fight. 
These fights are existential. They've been going on throughout all of human history since the garden, and they'll go on until history ends. And it's not for us to know who wins. It's for us to fight the fight, to run the race. So what I'm asking you guys to do today is to stand up and run the race. Thank you, guys. God bless you for being here. I appreciate you. Mark Meckler is fighting every day to call the first ever Article 5 Convention of States to drain the swamp once and for all. Join Mark and millions of other Americans by signing the official petition at conventionofstates.com slash pod. And now back to the show. All right, let's do it. This is the good part. You guys are the smart ones. Questions. Let's go over here to the left. Hello. Uh, I'm Simon from the University of Texas at Austin. Hook em. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, do the elections of presidents who won all or almost all of the electoral votes like Washington, Monroe, FDR, Nixon, and Reagan prove as exceptions to your thesis that Americans are always divided? So I don't think it proves an exception that Americans are always divided because I think if you looked at any of those elections and you asked people in states, say New York versus Texas, they might be united on who should be president, but if you ask them issue by issue, they're not united on the issues. And this is kind of where I come down is I'm a big believer in self-governance. And so they might say that on a national level that there is a person that we want to lead us, but if you asked, for example, you know, during Reagan's election, ask people in New York versus Texas about abortion, they would have very different positions on abortion. So I think there can be areas of national unity, and there need to be areas of national unity. But I think at the state and local level, this is where you see the division and where you've always seen the divisions. Thank you. Thank you. So you mentioned getting... Your name and where you're from oh, first. Sorry, sorry. Uh, Peter Holmquist, uh, Union University. Thanks, Peter. You mentioned uh, getting rid of the Department of Education, but wouldn't you say that the teachers unions, especially the LA Teachers Union, and for me, it's mostly been the Minneapolis Teachers Union, that is really what's destroying America uh, at its core by taking over the education system? Yeah, I, I actually think you're correct, but I, I don't think it's an either or, I think it's both. I mean, we've spent literally hundreds of billions of dollars through the Department of Education since it was founded for a literally 0.00 increase in average test scores. So we wasted all this money. A lot of the crazy wokeism that we see being imposed on schools now is coming through the Department of Education. They do it through funding mandates and attaching stuff to funding. So I think they're doing grave damage. On the issue of teachers unions, I'm in favor of abolishing teachers unions. This is one of my fantasies. The great conservative FDR said that public service is incompatible with unionization. Uh, a public employee union is simply legalized corruption. I mean, it's literally structured legalized corruption. The only reason that we have uh, federal level employees unions is at the federal level, they're chartered by the federal government. So I think we need a constitutional amendment removing these charters and preventing the federal government from ever chartering public employee unions again. So I think it's not a one step thing, it's two, but I agree with what you're saying. Thank you. Hi there, sir. Chase Saraski, University of Alabama. Um, you mentioned balancing the budget, and so I thought you might have some insight on this. Um, for a long time, there was no actual federal income tax in America. And um, 
perhaps it's time to look at some alternatives. So what do you think the benefits and drawbacks of something like a use tax might be? So uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. 16th Amendment is what imposes the federal income tax. The founders were highly opposed to the idea of a federal tax like this. And the philosophical reason matters. They didn't want you and I to have a direct relationship with the federal government because they felt like a government that was far away and centralized wouldn't actually represent us. They really wanted us represented through the state government so that you get the 16th Amendment, also the 17th Amendment at the same time in 1913, direct election of senators kind of break that and give us a direct relationship with Washington, D.C. So I, I am a fan of doing away with the federal income tax. I, I'm in favor of some kind of a fair tax or a flat tax. I'm, I'm not a particular advocate of any system. I, uh, VAT is a value-added tax. That's kind of, that's the European model. The problem that I see with a value-added tax is they tax at every step of the transaction, and ultimately they don't do away with income taxes either. So I worry about the ability for a huge tax burden. If I had a sort of fantasy, I'd love to see whatever taxes are imposed are imposed on the states, and the states are then required to collect that from their citizens and pass it through. The states were meant to be our intermediaries to the federal government. They're closer to us. You can walk into your state legislature, talk to your legislator, talk to your senator. Can't do that at the federal level. So I would like to see the states be the intermediary for monies paid to the federal government. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Mr. Meckler. My name is Patrick Streit from Hampton City College. Uh, I've noticed that you've been very adamant about removing uh, power from the federal government and giving it back to the people, yet you seem to be involved with several lawsuits within their substance, seem to give more power to the federal government over private companies such as Google and Twitter. So I was wondering how you can reconcile those two positions. I'm not sure what lawsuits you're talking about. Can you be so? I'm not involved personally in any lawsuits other than I have been sued by the former CEO of Parler. So that's the only lawsuit I'm in. Not personally involved in the attack, but made comments in support of such lawsuits. Yeah, so I have talked about President Trump's lawsuit. Is that the one you're referring to? President Trump yes, has sir. a lawsuit against Parler. Uh, I'm sorry, against Google is the main one, Google and Twitter. And the reason I'm in favor of that lawsuit is because at this point, those entities are acting in concert with the federal government. So the issue, the interesting thing about that lawsuit, and I think it's super interesting, is that the First Amendment obviously only applies to government actors. So you've got government uh, imposes restrictions on free speech, and then you say, well, that's against the First Amendment, and that's where we have First Amendment litigation. In this case, you've got private entities, and a lot of conservatives would say, well, those are private companies, they can do whatever they want. Generally speaking, I'm in favor of that. I'm very much of a free marketeer. The problem that we have today is there's this weird intersection. This is called state actor theory in the law where you've got a private entity that is somehow imbued with the power of the state. There's a couple of theories how that works. I don't want to get into too much nuance, but I'll give you an example. When you call before Congress, uh, say Twitter, Jack Dorsey, uh, you call Google, you, you call Mark Zuckerberg before Congress, and you say to them, as Democrats have done in Congress now, if you don't censor the speech that we consider misinformation, we're going to regulate you. You've now put pressure on them to censor speech in a way that the government can't. And if the government pressures private actors to censor speech, that actually has First Amendment implications. And so I think these lawsuits are very well placed. I don't know whether they'll succeed or not, but I think it's important that the Supreme Court explore that and prevent the federal government from exercising uh, restrictions on free speech they wouldn't be able to do under the First Amendment by influencing these private companies.
Hi, I'm Victoria from the University of Virginia. I was wondering if you could talk about the challenges of reaching the 34 states and how that process is going and where you see it getting to that point. Yeah, so it is a challenge to get to 34 states. It's, uh, you know, sometimes it's a great frustration to me. I, this is what I spend my life doing and I'd like it to happen tomorrow. Uh, but the founders intended it to be really difficult. If you look at our entire system of governance, there's no higher bar than it takes to get to convention. And there's no higher bar at all than it takes to ratify something that comes out of convention. So in other words, it requires the legislatures of two-thirds of the states just to get to convention, of three-quarters to ratify anything that comes out of convention. So the founders intentionally made it hard. And they did that because what they really wanted is they wanted national consensus. They wanted us to believe, to know as a nation, we really want this change before we change the Constitution. They said, we don't want it done willy-nilly, is, is literally one of the founders said. And so when I get frustrated, I have to remember this is how the founders intended. It takes millions upon millions of people. I say, you know, we have 5 million people involved right now. I think it takes 35 million maybe to be involved aggressively to make this happen. The, ch the biggest challenge I would say right now comes from people on the far right. And this is odd, I knew the left would oppose us. If you look at the, the lay of the land, every single nationally known conservative in America that's spoken on this has sp spoken in favor. That's Limbaugh, Levin, Hannity, Beck, Shapiro, Steve Dace, Pete Hegseth on Fox and Friends, you name it. All the professors that are nationally known on the right, legal professors, scholars, all in favor of it. And then on the left, Every single leftist organization in America signed a press release against us. That sounds ridiculous, that's every, but literally over 250, it's uh, Center on Budget and Policy Priority, Common Cause, MoveOn.org, Code Pink, La Raza, Planned Parenthood. All the people I'm happy to have on my enemies list signed it. But on the right, you've got a few groups, the John Birch Society on the right that stands against it, Eagle Forum that stands against it. On this issue, they stand with the radical leftists in America. That's the biggest hurdle. So we'll get two or three legislators in a given state that are part of the John Birch Society or listen to them. By the way, John Birch Society, just so you guys know, don't be fooled by them. John Birch Society, the current president of JBS, said of Ronald Reagan when he was running for president that he was a lackey for the communists. So, I mean, don't, don't listen to these people. They're crazy. But that's the hardest part is we get two or three of these people. They tend to be people who say they're in defense of the Constitution. So they're able to slow things down. Most of the legislative uh, majorities are slim in the Republican states. That's the hardest thing that we have going. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. I've got, I've got two minutes left. I want to close with a call to action for you guys. So when I was in college a long time ago, a little bit after George Washington, but still a long time ago, I went to San Diego State University. So if you look back in the archives, this is pre-digital, what you'll find is you'll find a guy who was a punk rock disc jockey at the college radio station whose name was Mark J on the air. Pretty slick, huh? Mark J had a blue mohawk and wore a dog collar to class. There are no photos, so if you look for them, you won't find them. My wife has forbidden me from wearing that in public since we've been married 28 years. I do still have that dog collar, by the way. So I was outspoken at your age. I was willing to be different at your age. You know, even back then, if you had a blue mohawk and you went out in public, people would look at you and people would judge you. And people would talk about you. You could stand in line at the grocery store and the lady behind you in the line at the grocery store would say to her kids, oh, look at that guy, he's never gonna be anything, he's never gonna make anything of himself. 
but I was willing to stand out because that's how I, I felt. I, just, I didn't want to be like everybody else. I wanted to do what I wanted to do because I believed in individual liberty. I believed in my own ability to express myself. Everybody else be damned. I didn't really care what other people thought. And in fact, to be honest, I took a little bit of joy in it. I remember the first time I got a mohawk and I came home with my mohawk and I was visiting my parents' house, very conservative folks in Los Angeles. And I remember my dad saying to me, you look like a complete idiot, but I'm very proud you have the self-confidence to do that. <laughs> so, I grew up, I went to law school, I got to law school, everybody in law school that I ever met was like they were wearing, the guys were wearing tweed jackets with leather patches on the elbows, and pretending to smoke pipes and pretending to be somebody they weren't. It freaked me out so much, the conformity. I went out and I got a blue mohawk in law school and I was willing to stand against the tide. And I took a lot of heat for it. And I had a lot of professors that gave me grief for it. What's with the hair? Why do you have to look like that? What are you trying to prove? And all I was trying to prove is that I'm a free man. And that I'm willing to stand. And that I don't care if people criticize me because I don't care. And the only reason I tell you that story is because it all worked out okay. Even though I had a blue mohawk, it all worked out okay. So whatever you are, whoever you are, Whatever you want to be, whatever you believe, I implore you, I plead to you for the future of our country, stand. Thank you guys. God bless you. Appreciate you. Thank you very much. Good to see you, brother. This has been the podcast version of The Battle Cry with Convention of States Action President Mark Meckler. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod and become part of the solution that's as big as the problem. Thank you for listening.